thought capital. Longer drought, more extreme rainfall. These risks impact companies financially. We all face the costs of dirty products we use. This season is all about the clean economy. We can do it. It's a brilliant economic solution to a severe environmental problem. I'm optimistic. You probably waste less money. Tax is a powerful tool. Learn, explore and change with Thought Capital from Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Michael Pascoe. We know we need to act on climate change, and a great many changes and adaptions are already underway. But how do we measure the improvements and the setbacks? Does the measurement vary if you're in government or business? Does everybody measure in the same way? And what are those measurements? Are we talking about carbon footprints, or are there other things to measure? If so, how do we do it? Are there any international standards? Or can we measure a clean economy at all? With us today seeking answers to some of those questions is Dr Anne-Marie Conrath-Hargraves from the Department of Accounting at Monash Business School. She teaches the course Accounting for Sustainability and is involved with the Critical Accounting Research Network Asia-Pacific. We also have Zoe Witten. She has two master's degrees in sustainability and environmental policy and is the executive director at Pollination Group a firm advising corporates and institutions on climate change and energy transition. Welcome. So let's start with an overarching question for you, Anne-Marie. Can we measure a clean economy? Is it even possible? A clean economy is commonly understood as achieving a net zero greenhouse gas emissions. And I think there's lots of misunderstandings surrounding this. And it actually means that across all the sectors of the economy, the climate pollution that is released into the atmosphere does not exceed what is removed from the atmosphere. So it is not just simply that we will stop emitting any emissions into the air. Now, in order to achieve any kind of of measurement of this, I think we need to address this from like an accountability standpoint of view. So what do we start by measuring? The starting point is to set clear and specific targets. And this then needs to be paired with appropriate metrics and measurements that allow us to actually track the progress or the process that we're making towards these targets. And such measurements include not just carbon emissions, but it also includes your energy, your water intensity, the percentage of um, research and development expenditures that go into uh, low carbon alternatives, for example, and it also includes your carbon price, whether that's internal or external. But it likewise also includes, for example, the value and the percentage of the value of assets that's located in coastal or flood areas. So when we talk about this measuring a clean economy, it's really important to understand that this is not just limited to emissions, but goes far beyond that. The nice thing about emissions is that they're readily observable um, in some sense. Uh, They're comparable, or at least reasonably comparable, and they're globally fungible. So you, you produce some emissions in Australia, somebody gets rid of some emissions in America, it's all going into a global budget. And so having an accounting system and an observation system and a system of targets that talks about emissions at a global scale is something that's quite accessible. And we're quite good at this now. Certainly in our regulatory agencies, we're very good at it. We've got in certain parts of the world quite significant infrastructure that's been in place for decades now to do this measurement activity. We're starting to get quite good at it in financial markets as well. Uh, There's certainly parts of it that we still haven't touched. 
But when you start to get into conversations about measuring resilience and measuring nature, then you start to get tons and tons of different units, units that are not comparable, quantities that are not fungible, um, and it all starts to get a lot more complicated. But we do start with this conversation about climate change and particularly about emissions. Well, Anne-Marie, what are the international standards already in use? Are there any or all companies introducing their own measurements? There's actually a lot of them out there. And um, this has often been described as something that a soup of letters, so to say, because there are so many agencies and standard setters out there that operate on an international level. So the answer to your question is actually very complicated because we have this range of standards and certifications that organizations can just pick and choose from as they like if they want to account for their sustainability impact. And most of them are voluntary in nature. In addition to that, companies have also drawn up their own measurements, their own accounting systems, which often then means actually that they transpose their their sustainability impact actually into monetary value in order to really measure the impact of their corporate actions. Overall, the fields can only be described as being highly fragmented and highly heterogeneous in nature because the organizations somewhat pick and choose whatever they want to sort of disclose information on. So we've got a horrifically complex problem and a total mess trying to deal with it. Where do we go? The answer to that, I think, is you try to do it and then you learn while you're trying to do it and that's what gets you to this consolidation, to this clarity that you're going to need to build in order to build an economy which is actually capable of governing itself and interacting with its component parts in a way that doesn't constantly end you up in some sustainability crisis or another. So we're in a very early stage. And when we look at how other transitions happened, it takes, you know, four decades, five decades to get all of the information systems and the governance systems you need in place. So it looks like it's a mess at the moment, but it's because we're still going through this accelerated process of trying to pack all that information into capitalism. But uh, I'm very hopeful. I don't know about you, Anne-Marie. Absolutely. I think also if we look at the early evidence that we have in research, we can actually see that accounting plays a really important role here when it comes to achieving a real effect. So there's, for example, some newer research that shows that if we mandate disclosures, for example, on GHG emissions, and this particular study was done in the UK uh, on listed companies, that we have seen an emissions reduction by those firms in the sample of around 18% over three years, which I think is really impressive that just because you mandate accounting disclosures, those emissions of those companies actually go down. So in this way, I really would like to emphasize this hopefulness, I guess, that Zoe was, um, was pointing to that if we really harvest the power that accounting has here, we can actually make a difference with accounting and have real effects. Well, I needed some optimism at this stage after you had outlined the problem. So just publishing an accounting somewhat shames companies or some companies into action. How much further can accounting go than that? Not only does reporting this stuff now put you in the sin bin, so to speak, and you have to wear the dunce cap to say, I, I did a really terrible job here, and it's a bit of a shame thing, but your capital market participants also care about it. And so they'll come to you and say, 
I'm starting to form my portfolios on the basis of your behaviour here and I might change my decision with respect to whether or not I want to own your shares, which can change the price of the shares, but also whether or not increasingly I would like to give you debt or I would like to give you access to insurance. And so that's something that's come into the conversation in a really big global way in the last five years that is driving it from being just a conversation about shame to a conversation about, well, you you probably need to change your behaviour. You know, we see this particularly in climate change, but the presence of this conversation in financial markets and particularly the presence of this conversation increasingly in debt markets means that it's not just uh, listed companies anymore who are under pressure. It's starting to be something that organisations across the full band of the economy have to deal with and have to countenance in their operations. Let's just be a little bit specific for a moment. Zoe, how, how do companies measure the inputs and outputs, the impact on climate change on their way to become cleaner? The two that I would really highlight The first is that the responsibility, your emissions ambit, is starting to move outside of your recreational boundary. And you'll hear the word scope three thrown around a lot, but it really is becoming something that all organisations need to think about. And that's what are the emissions in the value chain, not just from your suppliers, so the emissions that you rely on, but also for your customers. So, you know, what do your customers have to emit in order to utilise your product? So that's become a really big part of the conversation about measurement to the extent that some of the big global standards for reporting on climate change and and talking about your your climate change-related risks have started to explicitly say you you have to have this scope three conversation in the mix when you're doing targets, when you're doing measurement. The other big thing that's starting to um, become part of the conversation is what is considered to be a, a reasonable set of activities that you're acting on if you're acting on climate change and also if you're doing sustainability more broadly is is growing and one of the big things that's coming into that that world is nature so some companies have been uh, doing what we call environmental profit and loss statements for a long time for, for ages but more and more companies are being asked to do that and say you know what is your natural resource footprint what's the impact you have on biodiversity how are you thinking about and reporting that and managing that? And eventually, are you going to set targets for it? So the, the scope of stuff that you need to measure, even on climate change, is growing, right? Because nature and climate change are, are twinned and people are understanding those relationships more and more clearly over time. Yeah, we have this new, so to say, standard-setting body, which thankfully now has decided to work in consolidation with, on the one hand, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, and on the other hand, the Value Reporting Foundation, which initially wasn't intended to be the case. Now, I say this is really important because we don't really need yet another standard setter in the mix here. What we need is consolidation, standardization, and something that we can really compare across countries. The danger that we have with this new body is that of acceptance. And that is because There's a lack of harmonization with the global reporting initiative, which is something that has been taken up by a a lot of companies around the world, as well as with the European Union. Now, at the moment, the European Union is one of the faster moving markets when it comes to mandatory sustainability disclosures and actually accounting for a clean economy. And the danger of the European Union not picking this up and not supporting this new initiative could really influence its worldwide legitimacy and its pickup across the world. 
we underemphasize how important this process we're going through actually is. If this takes 10 years, it will be still be one of the most significant changes that we've ever processed into capitalism. And, you know, if it takes 30 years, it's still going to be incredible. And it, when we're in it and we're going, gosh, it's a mess and we're all having to report to everyone, it's taking ages, I've been working on this my whole career, it seems like nothing's going fast enough. But it's a very, very significant modification we're actually trying to make. Is there also a problem here, though, in the simple gap in expectations between publicly listed companies and private companies? If it's only covering a fraction of the world, is there that much point? There has been an issue with leakage, right? If you have a certain standard in a, in a public company, you hold that public company to account. One of the things they might do is take the things that don't fit that standard and put them into private markets, which we've seen, you know, and we've certainly seen a difference in standards in different jurisdictions, meaning that assets have been moved from companies in one jurisdiction to ownership and companies in another jurisdiction because the preferences and standards of financial markets in those jurisdictions have been different. So it's certainly been a big problem. You know, the, the conversations we have, particularly with capital market participants in the last 18 months, the big feature of those conversations is, okay, we've done listed markets. Now we have to do everything else. Build your debt, got to do hedge funds, got to do treasuries, got to do real investments in property and infrastructure. We, need, we know how to do it over there. Now we need to do it on all of this here. So it has been the case in the past that the private parts of the economy were shielded from this. It's not going to be the case for much longer. We need to take into account our small and medium-sized entities, our private entities. And as you said, I think we cannot leave the public sector behind this. We actually need mandates. Beyond the mandates, we will also need the enforcement in order to bring this to action. The other side of the coin, measuring greenwashing so we can avoid greenwashing. How good are we at that? How effective can we be at that? So I think this is a really interesting and really important question. And it's one that we discuss in my class quite a lot, because this is actually where the accounting comes in, right? Because it's the accounting that will essentially help you differentiate between is the company doing what it's saying it's doing? So can we help the company to account? And my students often start off the class being quite enthusiastic about certain companies that they might perceive as being very sustainable in their actions because of how they portray themselves in the public eye um, as being sustainable. And then as they learn how to evaluate sustainability, they are actually not as green as they would like themselves to be perceived. Here, the assurance and the certification is really important in terms of how can we actually validate the information that is being produced. And I think here, really, we need to talk about how can we provide assurance um, on this, for example, through certification or audit procedures. One of the things people are starting to look for measurements on that they haven't looked for in the past, it's becoming more and more about track record. So instead of saying, tell me what your 2030 target is, it's tell me what your 2030 target is and tell me what your emissions have been doing for the last four years. The effort of measuring, of accreditation, of the mess of offsets, all that hierarchy, is it too hard compared with simply putting on a very fat carbon price that would have market mechanism do the work instead of accountants. We often get asked the question about, wouldn't you just do this via policy? And the answer is, firstly, yes, you would, because a lot of your decisions become smoother. A lot of your um, risk and, and benefit sharing negotiations between different entities become much more straightforward. 
the transaction costs and the whole system goes down, the governance load and the whole system goes down, and your transition just gets to be a lot more predictable. You probably waste less money, you, you strand fewer investments, you make fewer mistakes. So in many cases, at least we think that having something like a carbon price in place tends to, to put you in the right place and get you on the right path with relative efficiency. But what I would say about that is that the accounting is very important because we can't live in an economic system, or at least it, it's a pain to live in an economic system that keeps making the wrong decision and then has to be whacked back onto track by policy. The price on carbon is nothing new. It has been demanded by economists for many a long year now, and it's a reality in many countries. Yet there is no global standard, and the current price is still very low, around $4.40 US. Two Monash-affiliated researchers, Dr. Umul Ruthba and Jan Arens, along with Dr. Roger Cohen, who you heard in a previous episode, have tried to put a real price on carbon. Dr. Umul Ruthba is a senior research fellow with the Monash Centre for Financial Studies. She has a PhD in economics from MIT and has worked both with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Jan Arens is an expert on emissions trading, carbon pricing and energy markets. He is the head of research at Spark Change, a provider of carbon investment products and data. Jan, could I start with you? Why do we focus on the carbon price? Does it measure climate change? Carbon pricing is not per se measuring climate change. Climate change is, of course, measured in temperature uh, increase. But carbon pricing is seen as a vital instrument to get the world to a low-carbon economy. There are many different ways of how you can force or guide companies to reduce emissions. You can use standards like forcing them to use more efficient technologies. You can, you can rule out some technologies to forbid them to phase out coal, for example. Or you can use pricing. And with pricing, again, you have two different ways what you can do. On the one way, you can tax companies, meaning you set a price of how much it costs to pollute one ton of greenhouse gases and companies need to pay for it, which they will, of course, pass on to the consumer. So ultimately, we all face the costs of dirty products we use. And the other way to, to look at this is a carbon pricing market, a market where policy is not setting the price, the regulator is not setting the price, but um, the market finds out what should be the relevant price to achieve a certain emission reduction goal. Pricing externalities means that you put a cost on things that were previously not priced. For example, pollution. It could be waste, it could be wastewater, and it can be carbon emissions. Omar, what does the real carbon price index show? There are about 65 jurisdictions that have a mandatory carbon price, either in the form of a carbon tax or through an emissions trading system. And the price varies a lot across these jurisdictions. For example, in Poland, the price is less than a dollar per ton. And in Sweden, it's more than $130 per ton. And these are US dollars, by the way, which makes it very difficult to do any analysis on global carbon price. So the index that we created or the group of indices that we have created, it take into account both the variation in prices and coverage across different jurisdictions. And so far, we know uh, these indices have the most comprehensive coverage and they track the prices of carbon globally since 2013. The overall index and the sub-indices 
tell us what countries and what regions are pricing carbon at what level, what's the use of that? What does that tell us that simply the price of carbon in any country doesn't? And emission is a global phenomenon, right? So it doesn't matter where it takes place. It affects the globe all the same. So the price of carbon should be the same as well, no matter where the emission takes place. So having these fragmented prices will not help us to get to a unified carbon price. And this is what we're all talking about. We want to have a uniform carbon price to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement to limit global warming below 1.2 degrees or to 1.5 degrees. And we believe that the indices that we have created, it can be used in a variety of ways by policymakers, companies, uh, even by researchers and investors. For example, our top index, which is the real carbon price index, it shows the average price of carbon globally. So if any new jurisdiction wants to set a price on carbon, it can take it as a benchmark. So our index standardizes this. It creates one price point for average emissions globally across all sectors, across, across all countries, to tell you how serious markets take the combat against climate change. And at the moment, we're not taking it serious. That's at least what the market tells us. At the price of about a coffee, it's not ambitious enough for industry to decarbonize substantially and for consumers to switch. Yes, in a perfect world, we would like to see all countries globally to adopt a high carb price or a very stringent emission trading market. Just the first step to adopt one some sort of carbon price would be a first step in the right direction. If the United Nations suddenly gave you the power, make one initiative, what would it be? I would have a universal carbon tax. That's the simplest of all <laughs> mechanisms that you can have. I would agree with the moon. Overall, we need a strong economic incentives for countries to decarbonize. Um, ultimately, we need a system where ideally you would have the market figuring out the lowest cost to reduce emissions globally, because that would be most effective. Anne-Marie and Zoe, what are your priorities in this area of measurement, given that we haven't got three or four decades? What would you like to see change? We need to have targets. And those targets need to have clear timeframes. They need to be specific. They need to be intensity-based, right? They need to have a base here. They need to be certain KPIs. It can't just be that we rely on 50% of the reduction of our emissions by 2050 coming out of technology breakthroughs. That's not a specific target. That's not a specific KPI. That's not going to help us actually measure or achieve the progress that we need to make in order to adhere to the Paris Climate Agreement. We need to have mandatory disclosure in a lot of regions. And I think that's just because financial markets are actually relatively good at managing some of this stuff when the disclosures are comparable and reasonable and they're there and they're available in the annual report. We're getting there with voluntary disclosure, but mandatory just kind of speeds that whole process up. So that's quite straightforward. The other thing I note, which is really quite esoteric, is, is what I would call demand. And this is the economics of the piece. What I mean here is that Presently, we got a lot of reporting, we've got a lot of targets, but we still have a lot of conversations with companies and particularly with early stage companies with solutions who say, look, I could sell green steel if only someone would buy it. We're doing a lot of work with oil and gas companies to try and change the energy mix, as Anne-Marie said, to do this big shift. 
And that's all well and good, but I need someone to buy my product in order for me to get going on this great sustainable pathway that we've got ahead of us and, and on this opportunity. And so coming to demand, one of the things I would say is that organizations across the across the system, whether it's government procurement, whether it's organizational procurement, whether you're a listed company, whether you're a private company, if you can demand products, even just the regular products that you buy that have the footprint that you want, you start to set up the economics to make that happen, even without having the policy in place. This is a multi-layered, complex topic we're only partly on the way to resolving. Thank you to all our guests for being on the show. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please give us a review and tell your friends to listen too. Next time, we're talking to the experts about the energy equation. Thought Capital is written and produced by Tina Zanu. Editor is Nadia Hume. Helen Westerman is our executive producer. My name is Michael Pascoe. See you again soon.